Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings of New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood and today we're talking with Barry Nelson, better known as Patch. Hi Patch. Yeah, good day Dave. How are you getting on? Good, good. Now um, you were a Skyhawk pilot back in the day in the RNZF. Yes I was. I uh, started flying Skyhawks in uh, 1987 when I started my uh, conversion at uh, number two squadron. Okay. Um, and then flew them right through till 1997 uh, with a break in the middle there for a little bit of instructing on the air trainer. Oh right, okay. So um, t- tell me a little bit about uh, you know what, what, how you found them as aircraft, what they were like to fly, and and uh, you know your general memories of the aircraft itself. Well, I guess the thing for me is I uh, I grew up through uh, high school in the um, you know the late 1970s, and of course the Skyhawk at that stage was the uh, pinnacle of aviation in New Zealand. And as a young fella, um, pretty much always wanted to be a fighter pilot. Uh, never wanted to be a policeman or a fireman or anything like that, yeah. and uh, so the Skyhawk was um, that was the thing to aim for. And uh, I guess I was uh, fortunate enough to have um, some of the uh, the skills and uh, some of the academic um, inclinations. And uh, with a lot of hard work and uh, that along the way, we uh, ended up getting to a conversion middle of uh, middle of '87 after uh, after a period at university and a little bit of flying training. Right, right. And of course, you would have trained on the Stripe Masters at that stage, would you? Yeah, absolutely. I was a blunty baby from uh, way back. So <laughs> the uh, the guys talking about uh, Mackies and things, I had one one hour in the back seat of a Mackie at one stage. All of my all of my heart lies with the uh, the Blunty. So um, watching Dave Brown do his stuff uh, over the air shows around New Zealand brings a tear to the eye for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. It's great to see one back in the sky, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And people, uh, you know. I guess uh, loves in the you know in the eye of the beholder, but uh, when that's your uh, your first jet type that you flew, um, there's there's definitely a little bit of passion there for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess uh, there must have been quite a, a step up going from the Blunty into the um, TA4K. Yeah, it certainly was. Um, I think everyone remembers their first flight, uh, just the sheer acceleration off the runway, uh, the uh, sensitivity of the ailerons. I think everyone tells the story of sort of getting airborne and then doing this twitch uh, of about sort of five degrees either side of wing straight and level as they uh, they tried to um, get the ailerons, uh, the, the feel for the ailerons sorted out. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, 10 minutes into it, you're just humming. It was, uh, it's, it's an awesome aeroplane. Okay, okay. Do you find it easy to fly? Look, it was... Um, yeah, it was it was relatively easy to fly with uh, some vices, and so, for instance, we found later on that um, after the uh, uh, guys had been coming through the Mackie, that the Skyhawk actually presented some vices that the Mackie didn't, and we had did have a couple of fairly spectacular departures uh, from controlled flight in the Skyhawk with guys that um, had become used to the relatively benign handling of the Mackie. All right. Having said that, if you didn't get yourself into uh, some of those corners, it was a really fun aeroplane to uh, fly. It was uh, it was responsive. 
um, you know, you had to deal with the drag of the delta if you, um, you know, if you had the angle of attack too high for too long. Um, but it was a difficult aeroplane to operate. Right. Um, it was a challenging aeroplane to operate, I should say. And a lot of that is really because we just did everything, and so you just had to get good at everything, and that was, you know, from maritime strike, air combat, close air support, interdiction, um, you know, the tanking, close formation arrows, did it all at night, um, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, a lot of fun to fly, quite hard to operate competently. Right, right, okay. So when you um, first converted onto them, uh, did you go onto the newly upgraded uh, Kahoos, or were you still using the... No, it must have been still the old ones then, the 87, was it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I did my first tour on the uh, the old jet, or the dinosaur, as we, uh, we called it once the um, Kahoo jet <laughs> yep. um, came into being. Um, in fact, I was um, effectively the last dinosaur line pilot. Um, Goris delivered the last um, dinosaur down to um, Woodburn, I believe. But uh, I was the last of the sort of the line pilots that didn't get a Kahu conversion before I headed off to instructor's course. Oh, right. so I did my uh, I did my first tour on the old jet, including the time on Kiwi Red. Yep. I went away. I did my instructor's course. I spent a year at PTS flying the air trainer, and then in '92 uh, I headed over to Two Squadron to be the ops flight commander. Except that I hadn't actually flown the Kahu jet, so um, the learning learning curve was uh, pretty steep when I uh, first arrived in Australia. Right, right, I bet, yeah. Um, when, you, when you got out of the training and onto the, onto the actual squadron uh, as such, um, on, onto you know, 75, is it quite daunting to go into that sort of environment? Yeah, it is. And I think uh, a lot of people, obviously not too many people, have a view of what happens on the squadron. And, and I think some have the impression that you know once you get your wings you've made it or once you've finished your fighter lead-in course you've made it or once you get to 75 squadron you've made it but in actual fact it, uh, it never ever stops and um, the uh, saying goes you're only as good as your last bad word um, mess up yeah um, and that's true right through your whole career and so even when you get to 75 squadron you're at the bottom of the pecking order you're a small fish in a big pond. You have to prove yourself as a pilot. You have to develop your skills. You have to pass your instrument rating tests, your general handling tests, um, which are done on a, on a yearly or six-monthly basis. You have to do your op categories. Um, so you start as an operational pilot. Then you, you know, within a year, you're expected to upgrade to be a two-ship lead. Within two years, you're expected to upgrade to a four-ship lead. Yeah. Um, when you come back as a flight commander or the boss, you're expected to be able to lead uh, what we would call a guerrilla or a, um, a mini, you know, more than four aircraft. Okay. Um, integrating different aircraft types, tankers, um, electronic warfare, um, all of that sort of thing. So uh, the scrutiny on your performance never, ever stops. And I guess that was really one of the drivers for the, the professionalism that I think you know, all of the pilots that I was involved with tried to show on the squadron because everyone was aware that you, you know, you drop the ball and, and you look like an ass and no one wants to do that. Right, right. Actually, it's really interesting to hear that because um, 
you know, everybody's aware of the high professionalism that um, our uh, strike pilots had, but I've, I guess, the, as you say, the, the general view is once they got into 75 Squadron, they'd made it, and it was sort of all just fun from there. But, you know, it's quite interesting, actually. Well, yeah. Not at all, no. The guys um, and, and everyone, uh, without exception, that I knew worked, worked really hard um, because credibility is fleeting. And, and like, uh, like any good performer, and, uh, you know, we've seen some spectacular disasters on stage or at the, um, the Super Bowl or uh, whatever where you get a, you know, long-established, you know, well-respected performer, they drop the ball and, you know, they're only as good as their last mess-up. So um, yeah. it's the same sort of thing, really. You, you need to be on the ball all the time. And, of course, if you drop the ball in an A4, potentially you could hit something or someone and uh, that's it all over. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you also had a lot of uh, quite hard-case characters uh, in your time um, in the squadrons then, didn't you? Yeah, look, everyone's uh, everyone's different, and it's amazing when you, uh, if anyone's read the book, The Right Stuff, you know, what is the right stuff? What makes what separates the men from the boys? What makes, you know, a good fighter pilot from an average one from someone who, you know, never quite makes it that far? It's really hard to tell because when you're on the squadron, you know, you have your exuberant characters, you have your quiet characters, you have your, um, you know, that, that got, some guys are a lot of fun. Some guys take it really seriously. Yeah. Um, there's there are all sorts, even within that sort of microcosm of a bunch of guys who have all come to what in New Zealand was a very small community. Um, and of course, variety is the spice of life. And so, you know, if you're all the same, it'd be really boring. And for sure, no one was the same. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess over those um, 10 years of flying the Skyhawks, you must have had some fairly interesting uh, exercises overseas. Yeah, we did. We, uh, we, we got around a lot, and uh, I guess um, the, the main ones were the deployments up into Southeast Asia in support of the uh, five-power defence arrangement. And so once a year, uh, 75 Squadron would deploy up into uh, Southeast Asia, and that would involve normally a trip to either Singapore or Malaysia. Yep. And normally we would alternate that year by year. Um, and then in conjunction with that, uh, sometimes the guys would go up into uh, Thailand in conjunction with that exercise. Okay. And on one of the times that I was uh, on the squadron, we actually deployed up through Indonesia and we flew out of Medan in Indonesia for, uh, I think it was 10 or 12 days oh. in the Indonesian Air Force. Wow, that was... Really, really interesting. Yeah, it would be, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to get on a deployment where we went up into uh, Thailand and worked with the uh, the Thais. Yeah. And on one of the deployments up into Malaysia, exercise Flying Fish in 97, uh, at that stage it was the biggest exercise that had been held in the area since the Second World War. And so we had something in the order of 100 fast jets uh, from the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore and Malaysia. Uh, we had the E3D, AWACS, uh, the VC-101, one tanker, or the VC-10 tanker from 101 Squadron, sorry, yeah. um, out from the UK, um, as well as the uh, HMS Illustrious with the um, FA-2 Sea Harriers. Oh, wow. Um, so you had Aussie F-18s and F-111s, you had Singaporean F-16s, F-5s, uh, A-4s, uh, the Malaysians had MiG-29, um, F-5s, 
um, etc. Et so it was uh, it was really quite the uh, the exercise. Oh, absolutely! Wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we also but, actually had the um, the sorry the RAF tornadoes out as well. So you had the the GR1 guys doing strike and the S3 guys doing air defence. Okay. Um, and I guess the almost the the highlight of my career actually was um, on that exercise where um, basically what we'd do is uh, normally the Kiwis would play red air and so we would be the attackers. We would go out and we would strike against the fleet of ships that were normally out off the uh, east coast of Malaysia. Yes, yeah. And the exercise areas there. Um, and then we would also do strikes against mainland um, Singapore and at uh, the airfields at Kwantan and Penang on Malaysia. Right. And the way they organised it, basically there would be uh, very sort of narrow boxes, so sort of 30 miles wide and 50 miles long sort of thing, where a pair of fighters would uh, conduct a combat air patrol and call that a kill box, and then as strikers, so I'd take a four-ship of A4s, yeah. and we would have to flow through that kill box. Okay, yeah. And therefore, you'd sort of pretty much guarantee that the fighters are going to get a radar contact, they're going to have to fly an intercept, you're going to have to defend yourself against them, and then once you go through the kill box, you pop out the other side, and there's the ships or one of the land targets or whatever. Now, some of these missions... Um, involved up to sort of six kill boxes so for instance we might get airborne out of um Penang, uh, sorry uh, quantum yeah. on the east coast of malaysia um go out to the north turn out to the east over the water yeah. and fly in through a through a kill box attack the ships fly out through a kill box go down to singapore fly in through a kill box attack a target on singapore fly out through a kill box go to the tanker, get some more gas, fly up to the north of Malaysia, go in through a kill box, attack the airfield at Penang, go out through a kill box, and then recover back to uh, Quantum. Wow. <laughs> so you're talking about an ex uh, a, a single mission that was two and a half, three hours long with six kill boxes, what, three or four targets, and a tank and serial. Wow. And uh, it was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. And I guess each of those kill boxes must have had a different uh, type of uh, aircraft in them. Absolutely. And so yep. all the fighter guys, um, the, the people uh, practicing to defend Peninsula Malaysia, they got to um, defend the kill boxes. Yeah. And so we would run up against uh, multi F-18s or Singaporean F-16s or the Malaysian Hawk 200s or MiG-29s. Um, and in this, uh, the one case that is most memorable, the um, coming off the ships the first time, the uh, the kill box was patrolled by two RAF Tornado um, F3 uh, fighters. Yes. And um, I was leading a four ship of uh, A4s with um, three jugs, so three three drop tanks. Yeah. Uh, an AIM-9 captive missile, an AGM-65 captive missile. And that's about as heavy and as draggy as it gets. It was early in the sortie, so there wasn't a lot of um, manoeuvrability available in the jet. Um, and effectively, the um, the two F3s saw us and committed on us. Yeah. And fortunately, the uh, the Australians over the years had taught us an awful lot about defeating the uh, the radar missile. So um, the Tornado F3 was armed with the, uh, the Sparrow 
missile. Yep. And so split the pairs, conducted a radar missile defense to the merge, and basically I ended up getting a guns kill on the uh, uh, the S3 that had come down to attack our pair. Wow. And uh, my number three, um, Anthony Fraser, but he took a uh, Fox 2 kill on uh, his guy, and so first merge of the war, really, with the uh, the RAF boys, and it was 2-0 with the Kiwis. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and then what made it really sweet was the fact that the guy leading the pair was a guy I'd met on an electronic warfare course in the in the, uh, the UK uh, yep. some years before. And so when we did the phone debrief, it was, uh, was kind of cool, because we... Uh, remade our acquaintances and uh, yeah, then got to talk about how the flow had gone and they were just blown away that uh, we had done that to them. Okay, wow. So it, was, uh, it was kind of a sweet moment. Wow, so those exercises were really, really uh, crucial for that dissimilar combat training, weren't they, really? Yeah, so um, it's one of those things that, you know, some people used to ask why we did air combat because, you know, we weren't uh, dedicated fighter aircraft most of our roles were really dedicated to uh, maritime strike or close air support and that sort of thing. But yep. I think, um, you know, here's a classic example where you've got a, a, an ugly aeroplane in that it's carrying an awful lot of stuff, it's heavy, it's uh, not as manoeuvrable as normal, yep. um, and you are required to strike progress, you're tried, you know, you need to evade some fighter aircraft to actually get to where you want to go. And so those skills of conducting your combat and flying the aeroplane in a less than optimum configuration, um, you know, suddenly they all come to the fore in actually what was a very realistic uh, scenario where, you know, potentially we're carrying a lot of weaponry, we need to go places, because obviously as soon as you jettison your weapons, yeah. well, that's a, you know, that's a kill as far as the, uh, the defending fighters are concerned anyway. Right, right, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, tell me about when you got selected for a Kiwi Red. Yeah, so that was uh, not yesterday either. So um, <laughs> basically, as I said, I joined the squadron in 80, uh, January 88. And so, um, of course, through 1987 and 1988, there were also Kiwi Red teams uh, run by Frank Sharp. Yep. And they had done a number of displays. They'd been over to uh, the Australian Bicentennial and... Uh, things like that, so um, there wasn't a lot of flying, um, to be fair, for the uh, the guys that weren't on the team yeah. in that sort of period, and so then sort of 89-90 came along, and um, John Bates had taken over as the CO, and the um, Commonwealth Games were coming up in Auckland, and a number of people had commented that we'd had these uh, Kiwi Red teams in 87-88, or might have been even 86-87-88, but they hadn't really displayed that much in New Zealand. Yeah. And so the idea came about that uh, we would do a bit of a, um, a national tour and then that would be finished off by displays at the opening and closing of the Commonwealth Games. Right, right, and okay. So in, I think, the sort of September, August, September 89 time frame, we started working up and then went through and finished off effectively in the, uh, I think it was the March, April of 90, so following the Commonwealth Games. Right, right. And a few of the summer air shows like Ardmore. 
which I see is on YouTube. <laughs> oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was at that uh, at that show. I also saw the team um, in Hamilton as well. I think yeah, twice. That was, that was a memorable show because there were two shows. There was, um, well, uh, even Ardmore. We flew home after the show, so you didn't really get to see much of the crowd. Yeah. Um, but Hamilton and Invercargill were two shows where we were based out of those airfields. We took off from the airfield with the crowd there, did the display, and then actually landed back. Right. And had the experience of um, meeting the crowd afterwards, because for most of our other displays, we we based out of a Haki or Fanuapai or um, Harewood. Yep. And then flew off to the display and came home, and you literally it was. It was just like going to work. You go and do a display. You land back and you know sign the jet in, say good day to the groundies, and go and have a beer. And that was, um, you know, it, it was like any other day at work. Where right. Hamilton and Chicago were quite uh, quite special because we were right in amongst it when we landed back. There were uh, fans of plenty, lots of babies to kiss, lots of signatures to uh, to sign, and um, it was uh, it was kind of a neat experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, I do remember you guys um, parking up all the jets there at Hamilton, and um, you know the crowd getting to have a pretty close look at the aircraft. And there was a lot of groundies there that were selling hats and that sort of thing as well. It was great. Yep, the uh, the squadron fund did pretty well out of a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, I got one of those hats. <laughs> yep, I think I've got one somewhere still too. <laughs> um, so, what was your uh, position and your specialty within the team? Uh, within the team itself, I was the uh, the number two. Yep. And uh, really, specialty-wise, was just being uh, smooth the whole time because uh, normally I'd have uh, Pete King outside me uh, trying to look through me at the boss, and uh, basically my job was not to distract him. Yep. Um, and that was about it, really. The um, Dobbo and I, as Dobbo was read three, we would do the uh, the rollbacks. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So that was a pair's effort, and then five and six would come in, and they would roll back as well. Um, and then Dobbo and I also did the uh, the opposing uh, low pass. Um, and so basically, uh, after the bomb burst, uh, we would come down and run head-on at each other. I'd set the line, and he would not hit me. Right, right. Uh, how that separation worked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember those manoeuvres. They both look really quite spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, I think um, Mitch coined the phrase the uh, the Caramello move for um, when Pika and Herb were uh, doing the, um, the, the the crossover, the roll under break, uh, not the roll under break, the crossover break. Um, you know, the, the idea is to make the crowd gasp, but for yep. it to be safe and sound in the meantime. Yeah, absolutely. I guess. Um, it must have been hard for you guys that were flying to actually get a, an appreciation of how the crowd were seeing it, how, how they were really appreciating it. it we, yeah, had no idea of how the crowd was seeing it, really. We, we Every display was videoed, yep. and we debriefed every display, and also every uh, all of the, the practices. And so... Um, I guess one side that I hadn't really thought about or appreciated beforehand was really quite how boring the flying became. Right. So um, when we were in the depths of the uh, the team, you would get airborne, you would go out and you would run two practices because each, each show only lasted about 15 minutes. 
Yes, yeah. And so normally we'd get airborne, we'd go out to Raumai, we'd have a loosen up, and then we would fly a display practice. When we finished that, we'd join in loose, have a talk about a few things on, on the radio at the time, say, right, you know, anyone got any problems, things they want to practice or things they want to look at, give it a run through again, and you go and land. Right. And so actually the difference between doing that and getting airborne at the at a show, there was the yep, little bit of added adrenaline and pressure because you know that you're on display. Yeah. But really, because you're not actually landing or dealing with the crowd, usually, there was very little difference. Right, and right. And so you'd go and do your display and you'd come home and you'd land and you'd debrief it and you'd go home. Right, right, right. Sort of okay. So, um, yeah, that's why I say, yeah, certainly remember Hamilton and, and Invercargill uh particularly for that after-experience. Oh, right, okay. So when the uh, the horrible news came through that the strike wing was going to be um, ab- ab- abandoned or abolished, yep. um, that must have been pretty gutting for you. Oh, yeah, gutted. Yeah. Gutted covers it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, uh, that was a, a pretty awful moment. There was um, a... A lot of uh, conflicted emotions in uh, a lot of people, I think, and I really uh, take my hat off to um, Nick Osborne, who was the, the CEO at the time, yep. um, Jason Eastope over in Australia. Um, obviously, after uh, Muzzard crashed, he took over as the uh, CEO over there. Yep. And basically, the, the way that everyone from the, um, from the pilots to the ground crews that were um, interviewed on TV and you know all of the, the drama that went with it, just how professionally everyone uh, you know conducted themselves, no matter what they were feeling inside. Yes, um, yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of us were were well conflicted at that stage. <laughs> In fact, I, I actually remember quite well that the public were talking about it a lot. You know, it's one of the big things in the news at the time, and everyone was disgusted at the whole um, concept of. Of losing our uh, air combat strike wing, it just seemed ridiculous. I remember seeing a poll on the television that said 90% of people wanted it to, to stay. Yeah. So you know, there's not many um, there's not many things that get that sort of reaction. Um, so you know, it's been a, it's been a huge loss to the air force, hasn't it? I, I think so. Yeah. Personally, I, I I think it has been a loss to the air force, and I think we're still dealing with. Um, you know some of the uh, the fallout from that, but equally, you know, we work in a democracy and we do as we're told. And yes, um, yeah. you know, you have to uh, suck it up and get on with it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, ha- where did you move on to from Skyhawks? Because you're obviously you're still in the Air Force now. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I guess um, it challenged my loyalty uh, quite a bit, um, but. I'm still here for uh, want of uh, something better to do, really. And basically, uh, 2001, I was the uh, Inspector General of the, uh, the Air Force, and that's a ground job in Wellington. Oh, yeah, and okay. then uh, towards the end of 2003, the helicopter replacement project was um, coming along. Right. And I was really keen to get out of my, uh, my staff job and get back to something that was at least semi-talking uh, about aeroplanes. Yes, yeah. And so I sort of put my hand up for the uh, the helicopter project and uh, 
I guess it's a, a fair warning to everyone that you've got to be careful what you wish for because uh, 10 years later I'm uh, still on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, and um, just getting back to the Skyhawks, um, uh, only a couple of weeks ago you were in the States uh, watching the first of the Skyhawks that's flown again. Yeah, look, I was, um, I was very fortunate and uh, in the right place at the right time and uh, said yes when the question was asked. And so I got to um, go over to uh, Lakeland, which is uh, just out uh, half an hour's drive east of Tampa, yeah, uh, in Florida. Um, so Tampa's on the uh, the west coast, on the uh, the Gulf of Mexico coast of the um, bit of Florida that uh, sticks out. Yes, yeah. And um, yeah, Lakeland uh, hosts annually the Fun and Sun Air Show, which apparently is second to Oshkosh in the United States. Okay, yeah. So if you imagine a sort of a fairly big air show, you've got an idea of what's going on. Right. The sort of thing uh, we're talking about starts Tuesday, finishes Sunday, and there is flying day and night for the entire week. Wow. Uh, it is it is quite um, quite unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awesome. Except that, of course, this year with uh, sequestration and uh, various things going on in the States, there yeah. was not a single active military presence at all in the entire time. Wow, that's that's um, stunning, isn't it? Yeah. That's amazing. So Blue Angels, Thunderbirds sitting on the ground, um, you know, they're talking about disbanding up to a third of their frontline squadrons. Uh, they've got some uh, fairly serious um, financial constraints placed on them, um, which uh, sort of vaguely familiar for some of the things that we've been dealing with. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's nice to see the jets flying again. So, long story short, we got over there uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Draken International is the the company that has uh, purchased eight A4s and sorry, two TA4s and six A4s, yep. and eight Mackies, and they're looking to uh, put them back into service to conduct uh, adversary training along the lines of exactly what we used to do at Two Squadron. Right, right, right. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, and they just. I mean, you're talking about a bunch of guys who uh, the pilots have a Brazilian hours flying all sorts of F model aeroplanes from 104s to uh, 14, 15, 16, 18, um, etc. Yeah. So there's no shortage of experience there. I was talking to one of the guys there, one of their senior pilots, and he was saying uh, he's a fighter weapon school grad with something like 70 different aircraft types. In his wow, that's a lot. Been flying since he was 15, and and has just flown everything. Um, these guys fly the uh, the Black Diamonds yes. uh, aerobatic team, yep. which is uh, using the L39 uh, jet. Yep, yep. And so uh, they do a very, very professional, incredible job of putting together a, a jet formation aerobatics uh, display. And of course, now with the um, uh, the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds are not displaying. I don't think they've actually been disbanded, but they're certainly they're not conducting any public displays uh, this year. Yeah. It means they're the only jet aerobatic team active in the United States. Holy cow, that's so amazing. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite special to uh, see these guys uh, perform, and it was even more special uh, on 
Friday a couple of weeks ago where um, I actually got to sit in the back seat of the number two while they were doing a practice. Brilliant. Which was uh, pretty cool because I never thought I'd get to do uh, formation jet aerobatics uh, again. And uh, especially not quite as close as those guys fly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it really was uh, really was special. How did the um, how did the L thirty nine compare for you to um, to what you used to fly with the A fours? Was it? Oh, look, the L thirty nine is uh, it's definitely a jet trainer. Yeah. And even the uh, not having flown the uh, the Mackie, um, apart from my hour of touring around in the back seat with Ricky Smith, but um, it, it the L thirty nine is definitely a jet trainer. It runs out of puff when you get it into the vertical. Which of course, if you know about um, formation aerobatics, is the thing that actually makes it challenging, is avoiding the uh, the light buffet or the stall as you go over the top of the loop. Yep. And to maintain a very tight, close formation as you go over the top of uh, those sort of manoeuvres, you do have to be uh, very, very careful. Right. And so the guys are um, particularly careful during the uh, during the season. They have to fly uh, at least once a week. To maintain their currency, okay, uh, and they conduct a practice uh, or, or you know number of practices before each air show, because uh, obviously these guys, the pilots flying them, are not full time. They are busy flying uh, freight for FedEx or um, you know doing doing other piloting jobs, right, right, uh, being corporate pilots and uh, things like that. So they come together to put the team together, but even so, they have to fly uh, every week to maintain their currency. Right, okay, well that's, yeah. that's amazing. Eh? With the A4, uh, when you hit, I mean, it just wakes the whole of the place up. The, uh, the J52 just makes a fantastic noise. Oh, yeah. And uh, when there's a bunch of little piston aerobats that are whizzing around and harvards and things like that, uh, you know when the A4 is arced up and is powering down the runway, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I can just imagine it. Yeah, it brought a tear to the eye. There's... Um, there's a few Kiwis over there um, helping out, and uh, there were a number there in the audience uh, watching on. And yep. uh, I guess, without doubt, everyone had a wee tear, and just so pleased to see them flying again rather than being chucked into a shredder. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's actually worked out quite well. A number of museums have got them, and we've still got some flying. So, yeah. Yeah, and they're um, Draken are flying them in uh, New Zealand colours as well, so they've retained their New Zealand camouflage. Uh, they have the uh, the American uh, buzz numbers uh, painted on the side, and they have the Draken International uh, crest on the side of them. But they have actually retained their uh, the Kiwi camouflage. So uh, the the Heritage Day that they uh, hosted um, on the uh, the Wednesday um, a couple of weeks ago yeah. was uh, was pretty special. The, these these guys are really really committed to maintaining the uh, homage to the, the New Zealand heritage for these uh, aircraft, both the A4 and the Mackie, which is really, really kind of cool. That, that is brilliant. That's really good. Did, did you find that the average American there um, kind of got it, though? Did, were they aware of what the RNZF is and that sort of thing? Yeah, to be honest, didn't really get to talk to the average American right. um, because we were pretty much flat out with the uh, the Draken guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my role over there in particular was talking to the uh, their pilots about the Kahu systems in yep. the A4 yep. and uh, giving them some of the ins and outs on the uh, how we used to work the, uh, the Kahu system because they're restored 
uh, they've restored the aircraft to um, full operational capability. So they uh, they have the radar, laser ring gyro, the display units, or the HOTAS, all of that is um, fully operable. Yep. Um, so they're not talking about flying these things as warbirds, they're talking about doing um, many thousands of hours of uh, fleet support, adversary support with these aircraft. And so, um, yeah, had the pleasure of sitting in the back seat of a jet again, which I haven't done for a few years, and, <laughs> and tapping through the different pages in the display units and um, talking about radars and, and the ins and outs of the inertial nav and things like that. So that was a good opportunity to rack the old grey matter for uh, some of that stuff that uh, hasn't come to mind for a year or two. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you think you're inspired now to maybe um, go and have a chat with some of the local jet owners and get, get into the warbird flying maybe? Oh, look, I'd absolutely, uh, absolutely love to. First thing I've got to do is um, get my daughter through university, though, probably does. So, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if, if, uh, that's, I'm, I'm sure some people listening will better have a wee chuckle at that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe in a year or two. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Actually, were you at uh, Wire Rapper this year, the um, Wings Over Wire Rapper? No, look, I wasn't. I didn't make the wings over wire rapid, but I did uh, did get down to Omarka. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, I can, uh, you know, rest assured, the Omarka air show, absolutely international quality. Um, although, you know, theoretically it's only three days long and it's in a little old place in, you know, in the South Island and um, it would seem to be a long way from, uh, from the big shows like Oshkosh and Fun and Sun. Yeah. Having been at Fun and Sun and having been at the uh, the Omarka Air Show, I'd go back to Omarka any day of the week ahead of going to Fun and Sun. Right. Um, the the quality of the the, uh, the show and the different the variety of the aircraft uh, was was just spectacular. And so you know, people who I, I, I'm sure that some of the New Zealand audience going to Omarka have no idea just how lucky they are to have that quality of show on their doorstep. Absolutely, I would agree with that. It's such a stunning air show. It's my favourite air show, um, you know, favourite regular air show there is. Yeah, I guess there's nothing worse than the convert. It's the first time I've been down there. Oh, right. I probably should have been before. And so I was certainly in that category of, of not knowing. Um, now that I know, get the word out, you know, get down to Omarka. It's, yeah. uh, it's a great show. Yeah, I guess we'll see you there next time then. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent, excellent. Um, have you got any sort of uh, final um, thoughts about the Skyhawk that you'd like to tell people, um, you know, that maybe they don't know about the Skyhawk? Uh, you know, I guess uh, I guess the point needs to be made that uh, this company has bought the Skyhawk and the Mackie to put into service in the United States to conduct adversary training yep. against the modern U.S. military forces. And I guess some of the uh, the rationale that was used for the decommissioning of the Skyhawks at the time was, you know, uh, a little misguided. Um, these guys are um, going to provide an absolutely credible adversary training capability, with, you know, with the Skyhawk and the Mackie. Um, and so, yeah, when you see them flying again, yeah, they've uh, they've still got it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Actually, that speaks volumes about those aircraft, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. Oh, yeah, it's a classic aeroplane, and, and you know there, there aren't many classics, and the Skyhawk's one of them. Yeah, um, it's right up there with the uh, the DC three, um, UH one, 
uh, you know, it really, really is a classic that's just flown for years and years and keeps delivering. Absolutely. That's uh, very good. Oh, thank you very much, Patch. It's been great to have a chat with you. And, oh, pleasure uh, talking to you, Dave. Yeah, yeah, great. I oh, hope to catch you soon. Um, or if not soon, then definitely at the next Amaka issue. Yeah, would absolutely look forward to. Cool. All right. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye. Cheers, bye. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Hopewood.